Um, if we uh, can all stand to say the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So now that we are in the mindset of uh, good first century Jews, uh, let's talk about Matthew 8 and 9. So these are the miracles chapters. As Stephen and Jeff have talked about in previous weeks, the book of Matthew is split into five, which roughly uh, follows the Pentateuch. So because the entire theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses. So the way Matthew is formed within that five is we have action and then we have a big speech, action and a big speech, action and a big speech. So Matthew's eight, Matthew 8 and 9 are those action chapters. And specifically, the actions that are happening are miracles. What we got. <laughs> so these are all the things that happen in chapters 8 and 9. And we will attempt to go through all of it. We'll see. This is a rocket speed. But the very first thing he does, and remember that what we talked about last week and what uh, immediately precedes this is that Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's all the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, he's just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and these are all the miracles he does. He heals the leper. He hears the centurion's servant. He hears Peter, heals Peter's mother-in-law and others. He speaks to the would-be disciples. He calms the sea, then he casts out the demoniacs, the demons. He heals the paralyzed man and forgives his sins. Then he calls Matthew, eats with the tax collectors, and addresses criticisms from the Pharisees and the Essenes. Uh, then he raises the little girl and woman and touches Jesus' coat. And finally, he heals the blind men, two blind men, casts out more demons, and heals more people. So this is all uh, what he does in these two chapters. The theme for these two chapters and what is immediately preceding and following is authority. Everything is about Jesus's authority as the son of God. So God come to earth. The very last uh, thing that Matthew chapter seven uh, says is when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So that sets the stage for this idea of authority. Uh, and it's not just authority in theory. We're actually seeing this authority in practice. And this is how Matthew reveals Jesus's authority. Uh, you'll see that it starts with small th authority and then it crescendos all the way to eventually authority over death itself. And it's important that as the son of God, Jesus could show his authority in a number of ways. He could have called down an angel, uh, an army of angels, or done any other miraculous things. But the way he uses his authority as God on earth is to heal. And we'll talk more about why that is uh, as we go through the stories. Actually, just kidding. We will talk about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
I told you, we were up late making biscuits. Um, Lori was up late making biscuits. I was up late supporting her. So the, the, we've talked about this um, briefly in the past, but the idea that your mind, your body, and your soul are all separate are Greco-Roman ideas, not Jewish at all. The Jewish concept is that you are one. It is wholeness. So if your body is sick, that also affects your mind and soul. If your soul is sick, that's going to affect your body. And that's something that we can intuitively understand. You know, when you're stressed, you, your body messes up. When you have a physical illness, it affects you emotionally and mentally. Um, so this idea that if you are sick in your body or in your mind or in your soul, it is affecting the whole. So in our Greco-Roman Western idea, Jesus's um, forgiveness of sins is a soul issue and healing the body miracles are a body issue. So those seem like separate concepts, but to the Jews, it's all fixing the whole. It's always that the body was incomplete and has been made whole. So the, um, the idea of complete healing is Rafua Shlema. And that is something that to this day, uh, Jews will wish you if you are sick in some way, they will wish you complete healing. So it's the idea that, oh, if you, if you have a cold, I don't just wish that that cold, you'll be healed from this cold. I wish your entire uh, self to be healed. And there's also uh, an interesting differentiation between the idea of healing versus being cured. So the idea of cure is that you have an illness or a symptom that is that you need to be alleviated from. And the idea of healing is that you're being made whole. So it is possible that you may have an illness or something that you will never be cured from. The example that most people that Jews like to point to is after Jacob wrestles with the angel in the Old Testament, he has a limp after that. So he has not been cured from a physical malady, but he is made whole. He does, he is whole again. So that, there's a difference between cure and wholeness, healing. So let's talk about the first miracle, the healing of the leper. Um, I apologize that we don't have time to read all of Matthew 8 and 9 today. Um, so I will give you a brief recap of what happens. Um, but I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to just open up to chapters 8 and 9 to follow along. So the leper comes to Jesus and asks to be healed, and Jesus does heal him. But what's important to note is that Jesus touches him to heal him. And we know of Jesus' power, and we'll see in the very next story that Jesus doesn't have to physically touch someone in order to heal them. This is a choice that Jesus makes. And that is uh, a very taboo in Jewish society. Um, they have very strict cleanliness laws and lepers are inherently unclean. And so in order to keep the people as a whole safe, lepers have to be shunned from society. They're not allowed to be with their families anymore. And this is a very communal society. So that is a huge, huge rending of what the way society is supposed to be, that these people are cast out in order to keep the rest of the people safe because they didn't have a cure for leprosy. 
And leprosy is not uh, what we would consider Hansen's disease today. That's what we call leprosy. Leprosy in the Bible is any type of skin ailment, um, but it could include modern day leprosy or Hansen's disease. So he, Jesus chooses to touch the leper. And this is the first in a number of times during these two chapters that he physically touches um, someone who needs healing. And as the son of God, when he touches someone, instead of the illness being transferred to him, his cleanliness transfers to the other person. Because us as humans, if there is someone who is sick and we touch that person, it's not that we are healthy and therefore now they are healthy. It's they are sick and now we are sick. The illness is what spreads. But with Jesus, he touches a, another person and his perfect nature is in his health and his wholeness is what is spread to the other person. So um, this is an example of Jesus uh, maintaining the idea of Jesus's health or of God's love without actually fulfilling Moses's law because Moses's law says you're not allowed to touch a leper. So a few times throughout these chapters, and this is something that the Pharisees love to touch on, the actual religious actions Jesus is, likes to invert or um, ignore because that's religiosity. That's not love. But when it comes to the heart of the law, because Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When it comes to the heart of the law, you'll see that Jesus always fulfills that heart. Uh, so finally, uh, when the leper is healed, he tells the leper to uh, go see the priest and offer a sacrifice. And this is an example of Jesus following Moses's law, because it says in Leviticus, um, in order to reenter society, you have to present yourself to the priest, and then the priest will say that you have been healed, you are whole again, and then you present an offering, and then you can uh, be reunited with your family and your community. So that is why Jesus tells the leper to go do these things. So immediately after healing the leper, we have uh, the healing of the centurion's servant. So a little background on the centurions. Centurions are Roman uh, members of the army. However, they're not like Pontius Pilate or other Romans we see who are born into privilege and have a role in the government because of that. Centurions started off as privates in, in our army terms, and they have worked their way up. So we don't know the centurion's name, but we do know that because Romans love keeping, uh, keeping records of things, we know all about what a centurion's life would look like. They served a 20-year term, they rose from within the ranks themselves, and they were not allowed to have legal families. So when the centurion comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant, it's very likely that the servant is like family to the centurion. He doesn't have a wife and children. The servant is maybe the only other person living in his house and serving him. So in that sense, the servant is probably younger, maybe a boy. Um, so it might be a father-son relationship. 
Um, and that is why the centurion is maybe so distressed that the servant is sick. It's not just one of many servants that he has floating around. This is someone who is family to the centurion. The centurion addresses Jesus as Lord, or in some translations as Sir. And this is striking because in the hierarchy of uh, importance, Romans were up here in Romans' eyes, and all Jews were down here. So even though there might be hierarchy within the Jews, Romans are up here. So the fact that a Roman is addressing a Jew as Lord or Sir is a big deal. That shows the centurion's faith before we even get to the centurion talking about his faith. You can see right away, and this is something that first century Jews would have noticed right away. So in the story itself, the centurion asks Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus says, do you want me to come? The centurion says, I'm a person who has men under me. I know if I say go do it, they do it. So I know that you have authority. If you say go do it, it'll be done. And Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith and the servant is healed. Uh, so, and then Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and talks about Gentiles will be able to eat at the kingdom of heaven with the Jewish patriarchs, but there will be some children of the kingdom, Jewish people, who will not be sitting at the table. So let's first talk about uh, the centurion's uh, concept of authority. So this is the first time that authority is explicitly mentioned in chapter 8, but it is a theme of the two chapters. And the authority is likened to uh, military authority. If I say go, they go. If I say come, they come. But even in Jewish culture, the idea of a long-distance miracle is something that's really crazy. In, uh, in Jewish history, ancient Jewish history, there were examples of rabbis being able to heal. Uh, but it was always in close proximity. They had to be there. They had to touch the person. They had to pray over the person. The idea of long-distance healing is something that's way outside of the Jewish concept of what is uh, what is possible. And up until this point, Jesus has been acting as a rabbi. There have been some small miracles, but he is not, uh, most people, most of his disciples even, are seeing him as a Jewish teacher. They're not necessarily understanding at this point that he is the son of God. He is God incarnate on earth. So the idea that this healing was able to take place long distance is a big deal to his disciples. And it's just a big deal in general because that's super cool. <laughs> so uh, he, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. And then he talks about what the kingdom of heaven will look like. Uh, so this is something that's turning the what Jews think of heaven on its head. Uh, they are the chosen people. They are the children of the kingdom. Uh, therefore, a lot of them believe that just by their birthright, they will be going to heaven because they are a son of, or daughter of Abraham. Uh, Jesus is saying that's not true. Um, there are Gentiles that are going to get to eat with your most beloved patriarchs. And there are some of you that will be on the outside looking in. And that is revolutionary. That is an idea that um, had not crossed many of their minds before, and that is outside of 
normal teaching. Um, Jesus does not interact with Gentiles very often. Um, but this is one of the things that Paul can point to, especially because Paul and Peter butt heads a lot. Peter's all about uh, the Christian Christian uh, church within the Jewish people, and Paul is the advocate for Gentiles. So uh, people in Paul's camp will point to this and say, look, Gentiles have a place in God's and the kingdom of heaven. It's not just something for the Jewish people. Any questions on those two? Yeah. I was just going to point out that as a military person, this centurion is captain. Mm-hmm. And it's, as far as I understand it, the only rank that's specifically mentioned in scripture, the actual rank. Interesting. You see soldier, you see, you know, uh, mm-hmm. commander. In the Old Testament, there's, there's words for commander, but as far as a rank, it's a very special rank. Okay, that's cool. And it is a it is a, a high rank, isn't it? Captain's a commander over 100 people. So. It's 100 more people than I have. Yeah. Well, <laughs> 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 Actually, this guy... In the, in the Roman structure, this guy could be anywhere from a captain to a major general. So he, he could be the centurion of the entire region. So he could be the equivalent of uh, Desert Storm, uh, uh He could be that high of a rank. And then the interesting part about these last two stories is that everyone thinks Jesus is a Pharisee based on the Sermon on the Mount. He just made the Pharisees' heads explode. <laughs> These last two. He touched a leper, then didn't go to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Then he goes and talks to the most hated people, the Romans, and heals a servant. And heals it by long distance. So at this point, the Pharisees' heads are literally just exploding because they said, this guy is not a Pharisee. And we do have that first confrontation between Pharisees and Jesus coming up. So, spoiler alert. Uh, The next thing he does is Jesus goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law. I'm sure some of us are wishing that Jesus uh, would not heal their mother's-in-law. And uh, he also, the people around um, bring their sick to Jesus, and he also heals them. Uh, So here is a um, snippet from this section. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So this is an an example of Jesus fulfilling the law and and Jesus um, as the Messiah. So right after this, Jesus decides to cross the sea, and he, there are people that have seen his, what he is doing and asked to follow him. The first one is a scribe, and the scribe says, let me come with you. Um, this is interesting in itself because scribes were uh, relative, relatively respected in Jewish culture, but being a disciple, it would be a step down. So the scribe is so enamored with Jesus that he is asking to take a step down, to start over and learn again from Jesus. And Jesus says, 
Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what he's getting, Jesus is getting at here is the idea that um, I'm working long, I'm working hard, there's no rest, and things are going to get hard. So this is a, up until now, it's been pretty, a pretty fun ride. Talking to people that love him, healing the sick, but uh, things are about to get difficult. And then another person comes and says, let me come with you, but I need to bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, which is, sounds way harsh on, the, on uh, the surface. And it is both harsher than we think and less harsh than we think. Uh, so the way Jewish burial rituals worked was as soon as someone was dead, uh, a corpse is unclean. You're not supposed to be touching the corpse. Get it buried ASAP. Uh, and then you have a week of mourning, uh, which is sitting Shiva. The, the family goes into their home and they don't leave and they mourn the, um, the person who has passed. And then this is something that didn't happen for very long, but Jesus's teachings were right in the middle of this. The oldest son would go a year later and rebury the father. Um, it would just be bones left at that point, And so he would rearrange the bones in the family's tomb. So what the man, the man is not saying, the funerals this afternoon, can I go do that? Which is something that we, our Western reading is to be like, ooh, like he can't even wait like a few hours to go to his dad's funeral. What he's saying is either um, my father is about to die or maybe my father has died and I'm waiting for the reburial. Because if, uh, if your father has literally just died, you don't have time to be talking to rabbis. You're sitting Shiva. Uh, so it's not that Jesus is saying you can't go to your dad's funeral. And also uh, there is evidence that I must first bury my father is an idiom. So it is, uh, what that means is I will do it, but it's, it's going to be a sec. Uh, I have to wait to bury my father. So all of that basically just means like, what the man is saying is, I want to follow you, but ugh, it's going to be a while. So that's what Jesus is responding to. However, uh, assuming that this is actually the man's father that either has died or will be dying, um, the idea that Jesus is saying, let the dead bury the dead and follow me is mind-blowing because after honoring God, honoring your father and mother is of primo importance to the Jewish people. So Jesus is saying, I am more important than honoring your father and mother with this burial ritual, um, which is huge. So the actual funeral service itself isn't really what's at issue. It's the idea of honoring your father and mother that Jesus is saying, I'm more important than that. The work I'm doing is more important than that. So after speaking to these would-be disciples, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. I have sort of a big picture of what the area looks like and then a sort of a topographical map of um, the Sea of Galilee. So this is all of Judea and we have the Decapolis here. Um, Capernaum is where Jesus is now and he's going to Gadara. So here you can sort of see it's mountainous, but then we have uh, some 
flatter areas by the Sea of Galilee. So he is crossing the sea from Capernaum to Gadara. And Gadara is not in Judea. It is in Decapolis, which is a primi primarily Gentile area. Um, in the first week, we talked about how this entire area under Herod the Great was split into four with his four sons. So this is one of the area, this is a different region than um, where the Jewish people are in mass. So we have the demoniacs. Um, there are two people, two demon-possessed men that are in the tombs in Gadara and they see um, Jesus and they say, the time has not yet come, why are you here? The time that has not yet come is probably referring to the judgment day, the end of time, um, end of days. And Jesus uh, is going to heal these men by expelling the demons. The demons ask, there's a herd of swine over there, send us into the swine. Jesus says, go. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs run off a cliff, run down a steep hill into the water and drown. Um, and then immediately the people of Gadara are like, could you please leave? That'd be great. So that is Jesus's entire time in Gadara. Um, interesting, this is the first time that Jesus is addressed as the son of God. Up until now, it's been son of man. He's called himself the son of man. Other people have called him the son of man. But the first people to address him as the son of God are demons which makes sense in that they're spiritual beings, so they inherently understand this more than humans, but it does kind of stink that demons beat humans to the punch in calling uh, Jesus, or noticing, or uh, acknowledging his divine uh, being. So this is a story that also takes place in Luke and Mark. Uh, however, in those versions, there's only one demon-possessed man. This is also the story of Legion is another miracle of the swine or legion are the two ways that people talk about this story. Um, there is a, a recurring theme in Matthew of doubling. So you have two demon-possessed men here. There are two blind men. Actually, there's two sets of two blind men that are healed. And finally, there are two something else. There's a fourth one. Um, and when you see these in the other Gospels, it's just one. So there's a lot, a lot of literature about, is this a contradiction? Is the Bible not, you know, does this show that the Bible is not divine because there's contradictions? Or, and then there's a million explanations of why it's not a contradiction. Um, the explanation that seems to make most sense to me is that we know that Matthew is not giving a chronological explanation of what's happening. He is regrouping things that did happen in order to highlight themes. So it's very possible that the two uh, times that Jesus expelled demons for more than one person, and so Matthew just put them both in the same story. So instead of explaining Jesus expelled demon from this man, and then Jesus expelled demon from this man, he scrunches those together. Um, that explanation makes a lot of sense. And then also there is the theory that um, there is a Jewish storytelling device of uh, making another person in order for the uh, listener or the reader 
to put themselves in that position of that second person. Um, uh, my very smart uh, friends that are getting their Masters of Divinity told me about this, and I smiled and nodded, and now I've conveyed that to you, and you have all the knowledge of that that I do. Yeah, so um, I think part of it is that, um, uh, at least in Jewish thought, demons are not immortal beings. They can be killed. So um, there was probably some uh, concept of the demons just wanting to survive. Um, and then there is the idea of, and I think it comes back to this idea of wholeness, is that if it's a mental illness or if it's demon possession, it's all still um, affecting the wholeness of the person. Um, but I do think this is a very good example of how, with our advances in medicine, we can look back at this and say, was it really demons or did they not know what mental illness looked like back then? And so they were misdiagnosing schizophrenia as demon possession or something like that. But um, if Jesus did heal that, it was still making that person whole again. And I do think it's interesting that the people of Gadara, um, up until this point, people have marveled at Jesus's abilities and brought more sick to him. The people of Gadara ask him to leave. Um, you kind of wonder why. I have an idea that it has to do that the people that owned the herd of pigs weren't super happy that all of their money was now floating in the ocean. Um, I read a commentary that made a really funny joke about Devil Tam. Uh, <laughs> um, I, it, yeah, that's about, it was like the dad joke of the Bible. Um, so, I imagine that might have had something to do with it. Also, it's kind of scary seeing that someone with that amount of power is in your presence because they can use that for good or they can use that for evil. And um, there were magic makers in Gentile society um, around that time. And usually those people were using their powers for evil. So if that is what they know about people that do magic uh, and that's what they thought Jesus was, they would have asked him to leave. So Jesus, and we're not really sure why Jesus crosses the sea to Gadara to begin with. But again, this is one of those few times that he's interacting with Gentiles. Um, he may have been interacting with Jewish people that were living in a Gentile land. We're not sure. Um, but it's one of those things that we just have to shrug and be like, I wish Matthew would have included why they asked him to leave, but he didn't. So we're just so uh, luck guessing. No, this is a later one. Mm -hmm. Or that one is a later one. Um, so now we start back with chapter 9. Jesus is heal healing the paralyzed man. Um, 
So we have seen thus far that, did I skip over Jesus? Okay, well, I, while he was on his way to Gadara, he calmed the seas. <laughs> That's one that we all remember from Sunday school. He, um, I did just skip right over it. Um, he was asleep, there was, there was a storm, the disciples were scared, they wake up Jesus. Jesus says, oh ye of little faith, and calms the waters. So now we have Jesus having authority over illness. We have Jesus having authority over um, nature. We have Jesus having authority over demons and spirits. And in this uh, story, we have Jesus um, having authority over the forgiveness of sins. So cleansing someone's um, uh, from past sins, which is something that is wholly within a God realm. Um, the, and the Pharisees take a big issue with this. So uh, the story, this story is a group of friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. And um, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he says, what would be easier, forgiving someone's sins or telling him to get up and walk? By the way, get up and walk. And the man does. Um, so the Pharisees see this and um, are not happy <laughs> that Jesus is um, forgiving people's sins because that's also not something that you can see like empirical change with. If someone's healed or paralyzed, now they're not, you're like, oh, that happened. But forgiveness of sins is something that happens internally. So um, Jesus can't, or no one can point to the unparalyzed man and say, look, his sins are forgiven. Um, however, Jesus does uh, address the hierarchy of needs. So what he's saying here is forgiving someone's sin is more important than their physical health. However, he does address both. And that's a good example of how we should be in our uh, treatment of others. You address their immediate need, whether that be hunger or clothing or um, needing someone to talk to, something along those lines. But all of that is in order to fill a deeper need, which is the need of uh, forgiving their sins, walking around with guilt. And there are some, so the idea of the man being paralyzed, we're not, we don't know what he was paralyzed <laughs> from. Um, some, it could be a broken back or it could be um, a mental illness and that he is so racked with guilt and other um, mental issues that it has presented itself in physical paralysis. Um, some types of schizophrenia do present themselves that way as well. Just total and completely comatose. But in any case, Jesus forgives his sins and uh, heals the man's paralysis. Um, then Jesus goes and eats with the tax collectors. He uh, recruits Matthew. Uh, you may recognize that from the name of the book. And then he eats with tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector and he's eating with the tax collectors. So the tax collectors were loathed by the Jewish people. Um, they were taking money from the Jews to give to the Romans. They were often pocketing some on the side for themselves. The taxes were exorbitant. Uh, there's evidence that some taxes were so exorbitant, taxes for using the road, 
that some villages in their entirety just disappeared because everyone had to leave because they could not afford to travel to and from their village. Um, entire villages were depopulated because of people like the tax collectors. So they are beyond loathed um, by the Jewish people. Um, but Jesus eats with them. And this is where Jesus talks about uh, healthy people don't need a doctor, the sick do, uses that language. Um, the Pharisees come and, and say, why, why are you eating with these people? Um, if people thought he was a Pharisee, this is a very non-pharisaical thing to do. Um, and the Pharisees aren't just saying this to say this, because the Pharisees know their Bible, well, their scripture, better than anyone else, right? You have to try really hard and know your scripture really well to become a Pharisee. So they have uh, a scriptural basis for why they're saying you don't eat with tax collectors. And that is specifically from Proverbs. Walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. And we can look back at this knowing Jesus's heart and say, okay, there's two ways to this. Uh, one is you can take this literally. Do not, do not physically or associate it with any way with fools, tax collectors. Or you can look at the heart of this. And the heart of this is not saying don't interact with these people. The heart of this is saying um, surround yourself with wise people. But um, obviously you cannot minister to those fools if you don't ever interact with them. And uh, that is what Jesus responds to the Pharisees with. He quotes Hosea saying um, that he cares more about compassion than shame. Uh, and that um, in Jewish culture, which is very honor-based, uh, Jesus has just used scripture, which is the Pharisees' thing, in order to shame the Pharisees. So it's embarrassing that they lost this little tussle, and it's embarrassing that Jesus used scripture to do it. So he is making a huge enemy out of uh, these people. Uh, shame is... is, is paramount in something you want to avoid. And the Pharisees are held in very high regard, so I imagine this does not happen to them very often. Um, and so all of this is why this is such a big deal that Jesus is able to um, use scripture um, in order to prove his point. Maybe it's not, I'm asking a question, but it seems significant to me that Jesus didn't take him to the temple. He went to his house. And I think, like, the sermon this morning, you know, I, where am I meeting people? And I'm thinking, is that significant that Jesus is at his house? I mean, other than he's a tax collector and awful, but... Uh, I do think that uh, guests and serving others and, um, and uh, hospitality was a very big part of Jewish culture. So, uh, it, so that may be one. Okay. Yeah, so going into someone's house is... is announcing to everyone that you are associating with that person. It's not just an interaction on the street. It's like, I'm here in your place. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then after the Pharisees come, the Essenes come. Uh, they're listed or they're described as disciples of John or followers of John. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an Essene and an Essene is, say, is Pharisee 2.0. They don't think the Pharisees are fanatical enough. So they go all the way. 
Um, and they question Jesus about, well, why aren't you fasting? Religious, pious people fast. That's how you know you're religious and pious. And uh, Jesus, how I would have responded is, uh, yo, I just did that for 40 days. <laughs> like, uh, don't worry about it. I got it. Um, how long have you fasted for? Oh, not that long? Great. Um, but what he does is he uses the analogy of um, you are not in mourning when the bridegroom is here and you don't put new uh, fabric on an old coat or new skin on an old wineskin. And all of that is, um, is getting at the idea of uh, what fasting is for and why Jesus is not doing it. So fasting was a sign of mourning. Um, as we know, the Jewish history has a lot of terrible things that have happened, a lot of massacres. Um, they were kicked out of their homeland. Uh, and fasting, the Essenes were fasting all the time in memory of all these different things. So a good Jew also fasted in order to um, remember these things. Today, Jewish people will fast during Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Yes. Um, I always get that in Yom Kippur mixed up. Is there a meta narrative going on here? So, um, you know, Messiah, Messiah is supposed to come, and of course, the, 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 the zealotry of the time is Messiah is supposed to come, in this case, get rid of the Romans. Right. And so there's this, this Roman occupation. So in this passage in Matthew, we now have three or four instances. So Jesus goes to a very Hellenistic part, all right? So he goes to uh, a part where a lot of the, the, the Roman, and, and 300 years earlier, the Greek administrators are living. And then we encounter people who are working for them. They're the Jewish swineherders, their, their market is, is the Romans and the Greeks. Their market's not Jews who won't eat the pigs. Um, a tax collector who's collecting taxes for the Roman government. Um, you know, uh, he's now dealing with the Essenes who, who also are, are rejecting Rome. Um, Jesus himself in his carpentry background, carpenters primarily serve the occupiers, not the locals. That's where they made their money. And now Jesus as Messiah to liberate Jewish, the Jewish nation from the Roman occupation, we have a series of stepladders of Jesus interacting with the occupiers themselves. And in some ways, in some ways setting himself up as not here to destroy that. I mean, it's, it's I don't know, I'm, I'm sensing that, that if I look at this through a Jewish lens, there's a meta-narrative here that he's already, that Matthew is laying a story about that Jesus' kingdom um, is not here, his messiahship is not here to defeat the Romans. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, he's accused of not being Jewish enough, of not being, that he's associating with them, he's acting in this way. And so uh, I'm not sure that I have a conclusion to this other than I'm really hearing and seeing as you go through this a meta-narrative um, that's happening um, that has some to do, something to do with the archetype of the Messiah. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, so there were the four groups within the Jewish, um, the Jewish people. There are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And we can point to different stories in Matthew of Jesus completely turning on its head what each of those people thought the Messiah would be like. So the Sadducees were all about the temple. Jesus is um, saying, no, people are more important than that. The Pharisees were all about the law. Jesus is saying, um, the law is not supreme. Uh, 
love for each other is supreme. The Essenes are saying um, it's all these religious actions that make you holy, and Jesus is saying, no, it's your heart that makes you holy. The Zealots are saying the Messiah is going to overcome the Roman emperor empire, and Jesus is saying, no, it's um, my kingdom is not of this earth. So there are different times when, if you know that, you can see that he's speaking to different audiences within the Jewish people. Um, so this story in particular, he's talking about the Essenes' um, use of religious piety and religious actions. Um, and Jesus is, we know that Jesus fasts because we saw the 40 days in the desert um, and the, of the temptations. But um, he's saying that fasting is backwards looking. It's about mourning the past, but I'm here now. Like, this is the present. This is a celebration. This is the son of God has come and he's going to forgive our sins. So the idea that you don't mourn when it's time to celebrate. Um, you don't take something new and put it on something old. Um, and that's sort of what he's getting at here. I've run out of time, um, but uh, I hope you all are starting to see the narrative of what happens in the very last um, story is of the woman who touches Jesus's cloak and of the little girl he raises from the dead. And that's Jesus's final authority over death itself. Um, and he also, there are Jewish rules of uncleanliness that Jesus just kicks by the wayside in order to be with people themselves. So uh, I'll see you all next week. Hopefully see some of you today at the shower <laughs> and uh, have a great week, you guys.